What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. If we can find ourselves back to our seats. Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. I'll give you a moment to find it. And um, after I read the passage at the end, I will say, um, this is the word of the Lord. And that is um, when you will say back to me, uh, thanks be to God. So uh, just a heads up of what's coming here in a few minutes, but... Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one year ago at this time, we were being introduced, most of us, for the first time to terms like social distancing and quarantine and self-isolation and shelter in place. These were at least being used with respect to COVID-19 for the first time almost exactly one year ago in Colorado. Now, I'm not here to debate the public health necessity of various levels of these orders. I think what is indisputable And what is actually very tragic is the effect that isolation and that loneliness has had on all of us mentally, physically, and spiritually. Loneliness, do you know, raises levels of stress hormones and inflammation. Loneliness increases your risk of clinical depression, anxiety, heart disease, arthritis, type 2 diabetes dementia, and even suicide. 
This is according to the American Journal of Epidemiology. Loneliness raises the risk of premature death, get this, from every cause for every race. So if you feel more stressed, more anxious, more discouraged, or even just like a simmering low level of just depression all the time, maybe even feel, feel more aches and pains over this past year, it's not just you, okay? Loneliness, isolation is figuratively and literally killing us. So good morning and welcome to Park Church. <laughs> Um, let's talk this morning about the importance of Christian community, okay? So these preview services are an opportunity, whether you're coming from Grace City or Park in the Highlands or whether you're brand new to both congregations, for us to just kind of start on the same page with saying, who are we? Who is this church that God has called us to be downtown Denver at the corner of Park Avenue and Broadway? And we looked a couple weeks ago at our mission that we exist as a church, as a people drawn together under one banner to make much of Jesus Christ, to make followers, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. And we talked two weeks ago about what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who's been reconciled to God by grace and is learning to walk in Jesus' rhythms of worship, community, and mission. So two weeks ago, we talked about that God of grace. And then last week, Miguel came during a violent snowstorm and he talked and he preached his heart out about worship and how we are all worshipers. We are all worshiping and making much of someone or something in our lives. And the thing that sets us free, the thing that gives us hope and purpose is worshiping the person of God. So this morning, we're to come to the third of those, which is the importance of Christian community, which is central not only to what we do, but this is, again, part of this who are we question. It's an identity question. And this morning, from the text that was just read for you, we're going to see four points about community that may be familiar to you, but are just important that we start on the same page. And in this text, we're going to see the problem, the peacemaker, the patterns, and the practice of Christian community. So the problem, the peacemaker, the patterns, and the practice. And I want to begin by saying, you notice we are turned in the book of Ephesians. So this is the Apostle Paul, one of the premier followers of Jesus, I guess you could say, in the first century, after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's this man who's traveling around ancient Turkey and Greece and Italy, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's telling everyone, Jew or Gentile, how you can find hope in the name of Jesus. So this particular letter is written to a collection of Christians in this city called Ephesus, which was a major Roman city, a port city on the Aegean Sea. And he is telling them, there's a scattering of Jews in this town. There's even a small synagogue. But most of this city is Gentile. Um, this is home to the famous, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or sometimes called the Temple of Diana. So it's an incredibly pagan and diverse culture. And I begin here with the problem because this is, this is verses 11 through 12. Since Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile culture and a predominantly Gentile church, he leads off by saying, you all need to remember your pre-existing condition before I came and shared Jesus with you. And none of you knew the name of Jesus. None of you knew what the gospel was about. And he says, at that time, 
you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And in verse 19, he continues, you were strangers and aliens. So what he's saying here is, friends, in the Old Testament, who were God's chosen people? The Hebrews, beginning with Abraham. And this whole story of the Old Testament of God bringing one particular promise to one particular group of people and then letting them go into bondage and then bringing them out of bondage and leading them and giving them the tabernacle and then giving them the law or the Torah, then giving them more promises and more promises, then giving them the promised land. He's like, who is this all tracking through? Well, it's tracking through the Israelites, the Hebrews, what we now say are the Jewish people. So in Paul's day, this is very important, in Paul's day, if a Gentile went to the temple in Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of Judaism, like if you want to worship Yahweh, Israel's God, this is the place of all places to go, the temple, on the Temple Mount in the middle of Jerusalem. And if you were a Gentile and you went there and you said, okay, I want to worship this God, and I know kind of he was your God before he was our God, in a chronological sense of Abram being called and all of that, but I want to worship this God. Do you know what this Gentile would encounter in Paul's day if he tried to go to the temple to worship? He would encounter a series of walls and courtyards. The surrounding area of the Temple Mount was this big bazaar. It was a plaza. This is where Jesus went and when he cleansed the temple, he's really in this, it's called the Court of Gentiles. And there's a bunch of buying and selling. There's bartering and trading. There's money changing going on. So if you've come from these different lands and faraway places, you can exchange your money into the right currency to buy a sacrifice. But the reality is that's as far as a Gentile could go in the days of Jesus and in the days of Paul. Because the the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that inside that court of the Gentiles was a wall about four to five feet high. And at regular uh, intervals along this wall in both Greek and Latin were these words. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. So if you're a Gentile in Paul's day and you wanted to worship God, the true God in the temple, you couldn't do it. And that's what, looking back to verse 14, this is explicitly what Paul's talking about when he refers to a dividing wall of hostility, not between people and God, but between Jews and Gentiles, between different races or ethnicities of people. And he's saying there was a literal wall, a literal barrier where the most of the audience of this letter, you couldn't go there and you couldn't worship God. And that wall was a continual reminder to every Gentile, you are not welcome. You are outsiders here. You cannot be a part of this community of believers. We are special, you're not. There's forever two categories of people. So that's the problem. But then Paul notes this earth-shattering turning point in verse 13, beginning with the words, but now. So he's literally saying, at one time, you were outsiders to grace. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And you notice he goes on here to say that before there were two people groups. 
Jews and Gentiles. Now, I know those are big buckets because Gentiles would have all these Asian peoples. Even back then, they would have Indians. They would have the Romans, the Gentiles, people even up into what we think of as the Norse countries today. So it's a big group of people, and there's many, many races and ethnicities there, but it's just Jews and Gentiles. But he's saying here that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, through his flesh and his blood, he says these two groups are now one group in Christ. Okay? So he's saying God is not only, Jesus is not only at work to reconcile sinners to God, which is like a vertical reconciliation, but simultaneously, at the very same time, by laying down his life, Jesus was accomplishing a horizontal reconciliation where he's saying, if you're coming into the one family, there's only one, which means you are automatically, simultaneously reconciled to each other. The wall of hostility is gone in Jesus' economy, okay? So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Gentiles, you know, if you tried to go to Jerusalem and worship, there was a literal wall of hostility that said, stop, don't come any further or you'll die. Which by the way, he's reminding Jews also, hey, before you get too big ahead, remember you couldn't go much further. You know, you tried to go into the temple and there was also a place there, right? The veil that told you, Jew, stop, don't go any further or you also will die. But you may know this, that on that day that Christ offered his life on a cross, the Bible says that from top to bottom, that veil was torn in two. And God is saying, through my son, you've been reconciled. Through my son, you can now come. There's not that barrier, and there's not that other barrier, and there's not any other barrier that either separates you from God and a relationship with God, but also that separates you from one another. Not your prejudices, not, not your, your cultural background, none of that. He's saying, this is the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, who says to two groups, neither one of you had access to God. All of you were dead in your sin. All of you were hopeless and helpless, but God, okay? But God in Christ did for you what you could never do for yourself. He paid the penalty. He opened the veil. He tore down the wall and he formed one new community by grace, okay? Now, that's, that's point two. We're already to point three. It's good news, right? The patterns, okay, the patterns. So now what Paul's gonna say is most of you have never heard this before. So let me, instead of just telling you what this is like, let me give you four patterns to show you the kind of reconciled relationships that you were meant to enjoy in Christ with one another. So let's begin in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So the first of these patterns is he's saying, your new primary citizenship is not as a Roman citizen versus just a Jew that didn't have those rights. You didn't have those privileges. You were subservient to the Roman citizenship. But I think he's still speaking to us today because I would guess that most of you in this room are probably one form of Gentile or another. And he's reminding us your primary citizenship is not American citizenship or Canadian citizenship or British citizenship or Chinese or Korean or any other thing. Because of the work of Jesus, he says, your citizenship in the kingdom of God supersedes all other citizenships that you may enjoy. Your name is written in heaven. So what rights, what responsibilities, what privileges, what benefits do you have? 
you have the benefits of Jesus bringing you out of darkness into light, and we all share the same benefits because we share the same citizenship. Okay, that's the first illustration. The second one, at the end of that verse, verse 19, he says, and members of the household of God. And what he's saying here is regardless of your family of origin, you know, your genealogy, the cultural layers that make up your heritage and are important to you. And they, they define a big part of who you are and how you see yourself. And he says, hey, I'm not eradicating those. You still enjoy many of those cultural layers. You have your ethnicity, etc. But he says, but now again, a, a new family has superseded all other families because you've been adopted into the family of God. And now you're siblings, one of another. So you're not just friends or, or, or people sitting in the same room as part of the same church. He says, you're literally sons and daughters of God. And so your blessing and your inheritance is whatever Jesus earned for you because now you're children of God. And that's the third pattern or second pattern. Now the third, verses 20 through 22, he says, you are a holy temple, a dwelling place for God built on the cornerstone of Jesus himself. And that sounds like a step back because we went from citizenship and then family to like a building. But understand what Paul's saying in progression is you went from being in the, in the kingdom of God to being in the family of God to now God is inside you. Because the temple was the place, if you know this, the tabernacle and then the temple, this is the one place where God said, I'll put my glory there. I will dwell in the midst of my people. And now what Paul is saying, because this is what Jesus said, is that physical temple is, is just a representation now. And the real temple is believers as they gather together in community. And God is here and God is present and God is meeting with us. We're not begging the spirit to come this morning. He's here He's present. He indwells his people. What we're saying is, God, make us aware of the reality of just how close and how intimate you are so that we respond to you in a way that's appropriate, okay? That's the third one. Now, the fourth pattern, if you turn over maybe a page to chapter four, verses 15 through 16, which I'll get to in just a moment, the Bible says you're actually members of the body of Jesus Christ, and what he's saying here in this analogy, which is also used other places in scripture, is that just as the physical human body has a head and then thousands, and sorry, medical people, you know, you would say like billions of different parts, right? Because you're thinking on a cellular and molecular level. But even as you just think of like hands and feet and ears and tongue and all these different internal organs that Paul says somewhere else are, are not as presentable, but they're doing a very important function. He says, the church, the community of Jesus is like that, where you have one head, one leader, one Lord, but you've all been called together in organic unity to perform different functions for one purpose. And before I move on, I want you to just note with me the increasing intimacy of each of those four patterns. That first, and I, and I mean intimacy both with God and also with one another in Christian community. Because the first analogy says you are, you, God is king and you are fellow citizens of his kingdom. The second pattern says God is father and you are siblings. The third pattern says God is indwelling spirit and you are like stones that are literally cemented to one another on the foundation of Jesus. But then that fourth analogy says God is head 
and we are members of his body. And there's a, there's a building intimacy and connection with each of those. And before I go on, I want to pause and just say, is this what church feels like to you? Does anybody here think of church as like, that's a building that I go to, or that's a service that I attend? Or maybe you think of a subset of the church, like I have these friends at church, and that's kind of like my church. Or I have this one-off nonprofit thing that I'm engaged in, and that feels like church. Or is it this mutually interdependent community of people who are as different from one another as you could possibly imagine, but they have one thing in common, and that is a love for Jesus? Okay, as different as you can imagine, but we love Jesus. We've been called by Jesus. We've been rescued by Jesus, okay? Now listen, what, what I've just shared with you is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus came to live and to die and to rise from the dead to give you. It's the hope that you were strangers, you were aliens, you were outsiders to the promises and to grace. But by the blood of Jesus, you've been brought in, you've been reconciled to the Father. It's a free gift. He gives it to you by faith. And he says, simultaneously, I'm not just giving you a right relationship with God, but I've worked really, really, really hard to give you a right relationship with very different people around you. This is the gospel, okay? So what we should be hearing already is there's no such thing as DIY or Lone Ranger Christianity. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. Hear me out. There's, and you're like, you're saying this because you're a pastor. True, but, but not completely true. Um, there's no such thing as I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. There, there's no such thing. This is what Jesus gave his life for. Okay, he's better than us. But he says, when I reconciled you to me and to the Father, I simultaneously reconciled you to one another. So don't get such a big head about what people are doing in the name of Jesus that bothers you. We're going to lament that before we take communion together in a few minutes. But Jesus saves from isolation into community as part of his total salvation program. Okay? So this leads us to the final point, which is the practice. And I, I intend this final point to just be extremely practical for us. So with this, will you turn with me, if you're not already there, just over a page to chapter 4. And let me read a few verses here from Ephesians 4. So beginning in verse 1, Paul continues the same letter to this mostly Gentile church in Ephesus, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now jump down to verse 11. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, in, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And again, these are not my words. These are the words of our Lord, okay? Now, here's your one big idea. Here's kind of your theme this morning. Paul's saying commitment to and investment in Christian community is the reasonable response to Christ's reconciling love. Okay, so commitment to and investment in Christian community is the reasonable response to Christ's reconciling love. And what Paul has just done between chapter two and chapter four is he's moved from the theological ground of community to the practice of it. Or we could say he's moved from orthodoxy to orthopraxy from right teaching, right doctrine to healthy Christian living. And we'll say this over and over and over down here, but there is always this connection between right belief and right action, okay? We can't just say, I academically receive these truths and that makes me a Christian. Jesus calls us in discipleship, apprenticeship. Okay, if you believe that and you're following me, that has profound implications for everyday life. So let's look at that, okay? And I call this, again, the practice of Christian community, point four. But notice the first words of chapter four, where Paul says, I therefore urge you. And what he's saying is, I therefore, on the basis of what I just said back in chapters one, two, and three, therefore, I'm going to urge you to walk in a manner that is consistent with that. Okay, that's why I said this is the gospel. We don't earn the gospel. We don't deserve the gospel. We don't repay the gospel. But he's saying, if you believe the gospel... Therefore, I'm urging you to live in a way that's consistent with what you say you believe, okay? And here's what the gist of what Paul is saying here in chapter four. The verses I read kind of boil down to this. Paul's saying every Christian is in community with other believers and that community is diverse and it's messy, but it's intentional, okay? And I wanna unpack each of those statements for just a moment each, okay? I said, first of all, every Christian is in community, and you notice when Paul gets to the therefore of the gospel, therefore, if you've been reconciled not only to God, but also to one another, therefore, community is God's idea. It's not my idea. I love community. I'm glad to see Christians living in community, but it's God's idea. And he says, just as there is one Lord, one God and Father of all, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, he says, there's also one body. Okay, and this is a core reality of the gospel that there is one community that you belong to in Christ. Now, there are many different local expressions of that body, many different subcultures and personalities. And I, for one, thank God that there are different personalities and subcultures of churches. So, as people need Jesus and they need community, they can hopefully find something that resonates deeply on many, many personal levels so that they can grow and be encouraged but there's still just one body. Every Christian is in community. 
Second, I said Christian community is diverse. See, we're all here by grace, plus nothing. And that means we would expect to look out in a church community and see people who are very different because it wasn't because you were a certain race or gender. It wasn't because you held down a certain uh, strata of job because you landed in a certain socioeconomic strata. It's not because you had a certain level of education or even morality. It's not because you have the same spiritual gifts or abilities or the same passions. It's not because you all pull for the Broncos, Miguel. Christian community is diverse. <laughs> but I do, this, this is such an important point, okay? God's picture of community is not like that jug of homogenized white milk. Where whether, I mean, unless you've let it sit too long in the back of the fridge, you know what I'm talking about? Unless you do that, it should be the same at the bottom as it is at the top, okay? That is not God's picture of Christian community. What, what Paul pictures here and all throughout the New Testament is something that's heterogeneous, it's variegated, it's multi-ethnic, it cuts across all different kind of strata that human beings would not naturally instinctively put together, but Jesus did because it's by grace, okay? So it not only has many different members, it has many different types of members, including Chiefs fans that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, I'm only doing this because he threatened to wear a chief sweatshirt to like an important meeting coming up, okay? So I know it's coming back next Sunday. Oh no, Gary's next Sunday, so we're good. Okay, you have to wait a few, while, well, a few weeks. Um, so let me, let me just say this. Um, we all instinctively gravitate toward people that we just click with. You know, you, you start having a conversation and you have that little voice in your head playing like, me too. Oh, me too. I like this. Oh, me too. I like gourmet coffee. Oh, me too. I like these teams. Oh, me too. I like doing these kinds of things in the city. Me too. And you're like, we should be friends, okay? And that's very important. It's very important. It's important to us that we, that we build a church in Jesus' name that gives you those kinds of friendships where you just click with certain people and you're like, it is just a joy to be around certain people. I've shared this before, but like some of my best friends are just people that you sit with and you can say something and they're never like, what did you mean by that? Because they just know what you meant by that, right? But hear me out. That kind of friendship is not Christian community. The idea is not that you walk in and it's just easy and it's natural and instinctive because we're surrounded by a bunch of people who look like us and think like us and act like us. The point is we're committing to love and serve and know and be known by and do life with a spectrum of people whose only commonality is their love for Jesus. And that's the only kind of community that the, the New Testament early church knew which is why this next po point is important. Christian community is messy. Just look back to verses two and three, and Paul lists five attributes here, okay? Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance in love, and eagerness to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already created. What does each of those attributes presuppose? Conflict. See, you, you don't have to be humble you don't have to be gentle. You don't have to forbear, be patient, forgive if people aren't hurting you. 
Okay? These attributes that Paul lists, and this is how incredibly practical Paul is. He's like, look, people are going to test your patience. They're going to get you riled up. People are going to sin against you. They're going to hurt you. You're going to want to walk away sometimes. Christian community is messy. But point four, Christian community is intentional. It's purposeful. Jesus Christ is not like, do community. And you're like, why, Jesus? And he's like, uh, I don't know, because that's what CrossFit does. No, he has meaningful reasons and objectives. He says here, if you were to read these verses again, starting with, he gave pastors and teachers to equip you all to do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Why? And he's basically saying, why? What's the point? What are we doing together? He's like, do you want to be mature? Do you want to be healthy? Do you want to be strong? Do you want to be stable? So you're not just kicked around by every new thing that comes along. And you're like, I guess we should talk about that. I guess we should now have a symposium on that and make that the center of the church because everybody's talking about it. He's like, do you want to be stable and grounded and fully equipped to love and serve and enjoy God? Then you're going to need community to do that. And he's just being super practical here. And I want to be super practical here in closing and just ask you, why is this kind of community so stinking hard? Let me give you four hindrances to community and I'm, I'll be done. I already mentioned one of these in my introduction. One is just simply isolation. Isolation is a community killer. And this past year has been extraordinarily hard, especially if you're an extrovert. But an introvert, you're hopefully struggling some too. And I don't mean hopefully in the sense that I hope you're struggling, but I hope that even if you recharge by going away and having peace and alone time, which is what it means to be an introvert. And introverts, it's not, so for you extroverts, it doesn't mean that they don't like people. It means they have to have peace and quiet to kind of recharge, whereas you have to go out and party to recharge. You have to be around people, and you're like, yeah, recharging till the next morning, and you're, then you're not recharged. But emotionally, spiritually, you are recharging, okay? Well, this year, and there's this famous book David Putnam wrote, Bowling Alone, about isolation and loneliness in American society. And this year, you couldn't even bowl alone. I mean, that's how isolated we've been. And I know many of you are joining on the live stream, and this is not my opportunity to like beat you up and say, why aren't you here? I just want to say from a pastoral heart and a gentle heart, but I want to, I want to exhort you and I want to encourage you. Um, you know, virtual gatherings is like social or online community. They're, they're oxymorons. A virtual gathering is not a gathering, not in the same way as being around community. And I know that for health reasons and for other reasons, some of you are more comfortable with that right now and probably making wise decisions. So don't hear me beating you up. I'm saying you probably need to work harder and we as a church need to work harder for you on behalf of you working together to make sure that you're not just falling off because of isolation, because of loneliness, and nobody's checking in with you, and you're not checking in with others as you should, and you're kind of in this spiral, okay? So we love you, but that isolation could be a serious hindrance to community. Um, then these next three actually come from John Mark Comer. But the second of the major hindrances to community is simply individualism. 
So isolation, but individualism. And our culture, one of our core values of postmodern society is expressive individualism, which is this idea you find your identity, you find you just being you and doing you and living this hyper autonomy of life is about me and I've got to experience everything and grab everything I can get and then just express myself as this really self-made, self-determined human being and then everything's going to be great. And that's destroying community, that hyper-individualistic thing. And I, look, Jesus loves you and he values you as individuals. I was having a conversation with someone this week. There are certain decisions in the Christian life that only you can make for yourself, okay? There may even be people in this room who are praying for you to come to Jesus and trust in Jesus, but we can't make that decision for you, okay? But Jesus has something better for you than just an individual, it's me and him kind of Christianity, and with this analogy of the body, I think of something really kind of funky and not crude, but it's like if you, if you think you can do this individualistic life with Jesus, I just picture this head and then like this little string of like blood vessels and nerve endings and stuff going to like this pancreas that's like dragging on the sidewalk as you, you and Jesus just doing life together, you know? And, and if you saw that, it would be horrifying. You know, you're, you need skin to protect your pancreas and to surround your pancreas with love, okay? So this, this kind of individualism should be overcome by the grace of the gospel and the call to the common good where you can listen to other perspectives. You can benefit from a collective wisdom where you give and receive support, where you give and receive unconditional love. And we got feedback from our first service and then our service last week from some of you who are new here. And do you know what that did? Instead of us just putting up walls and being like, whoa, I'm sorry, are you on staff here? We listened and it made things better because we're not trying to say, hey, we're individuals. We know what we're doing, but we're like, no, we're community. And by not trying to do an individualistic thing is you have feedback of like, this was a negative experience for me for this reason, or this could have been better, or have you thought about this? I'm like, praise God for that, okay? Individualism. Number three, a third hindrance to community is idealism. I mean, just think about the expectations that some of you bring to church. And you walk in, you have this idyllic, it's gonna be so peaceful, so tranquil. Come as, I don't have to do anything. And people just come up and love me and serve me and we're just gonna click and it's gonna be amazing. And it's like a dating relationship. People date church all the time. They're like, oh, we met? I kind of liked you. Like we should go out on a second date, okay? And then you're like, ooh, we should get engaged. And then you get married and you make some kind of commitment. You know, maybe it's filling out your commitment card. Okay, all right, I guess I'm in. And then there's a honeymoon period. But what comes then is the messiness of you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're broken, we hurt each other, there's conflict, we get sideways. And what always happens is people leave and do it all over again. And I think a lot of that has to do with idealism. And this is just how practical the New Testament is. It's like conflict's gonna happen, people are going to hurt you, you're gonna hurt people. Stop being naive and idealistic about the fact that if you start doing life with other redeemed sinners, you're gonna hurt each other. And that's why Paul says, Jesus gives you these gifts of like humility, gentleness, forgiveness, forbearance, patience. Stay. You know, some of my best friends are not people that I'm just like, it was always smooth sailing, but more it was like, 
I don't think you meant to say that. I don't, I don't think you meant that like that. I think there was a better way. Or what are you dealing with right now? Well, what do you mean? Well, you know what I mean, you know? And there's, there's friction, which is required for iron to sharpen iron. So lose your idealism, embrace the reality of life and community, and let's go, okay? Um, then the final thing is just, so I've said isolation, individualism, idealism, and intimidation. Just fear. Fears hinder real community because you need vulnerability and accountability in order to really grow. And if you're coming in here like, I'm afraid that people are going to discover the real me, like the shame parts, the shadow parts, stuff I've done, stuff I'm dealing with now. Some of you are afraid of being hurt again. You're like, I've put myself out there. I disclosed myself. I thought we were friends and then wham, and it hurt. And I've experienced the same and it hurts, okay? My point is not to brush these fears away. I'm, I'm actually validating your fears, but saying there's something more ultimate than your fears, which is the grace of God that wants to work in you and through you in the context of community. So maybe just do a quick cost-benefit analysis here and say, here's what I'm afraid will happen if I commit to and invest in Christian community and literally write them out. This could happen. This could happen. What about this? These people will let me down. They'll expect too much of me. It'll be too great a risk, too great a cost. People will know me. I don't really want to be known. And then when you write that all out, you say, okay, these are real. These could happen. And then write back to your one big idea. Commitment to and investment in Christian community is the reasonable response to Christ's reconciling love. As you were saying, like, amen, that's good, praise the Lord, during that gospel section of like, thank you, Jesus, for seeing me dead in my trespasses and sins, making me alive together with Christ, seating me with him in the heavenly places and reconciling me to the Father and reconciling me to the community of saints. So what's the reasonable response? What's the therefore? I urge you, engage and invest and let God work through the most joyful moments of that community, let God work through the most painful, heart-wrenching moments of that community. Step over your fears in faith that the Spirit is working through your obedience to give grace upon grace. Community, it's important. Father, we pray here in closing this portion of our service just that you would be honored by our response. And for some that may be... Um, filling out a commitment card and just taking that tactile, hands-on step of saying, I don't want to keep drifting around. I, I want to engage. I want to, to let a community of believers in one place know, hey, you can count on me. I'm in. I want to serve with you. And Lord, as, as we pray that some would do that, we also honor your work that you've been doing for years in their lives to bring them to Jesus, to give them gifts, spiritual gifts, abilities, experiences, passions around certain things. Help us to use those for your honor and glory. And as our mission statement says, also the joy of all people. There are people here and there are people not yet here who are gonna benefit from the kind of community that we see the Spirit creates, but we have the opportunity 
to keep together, to renew day by day through these spiritual practices. Lord, before we go to your table and we consume these elements that remind us, that represent your body, your flesh, which was given on a cross to reconcile us to the Father and to one another, and your blood that was shed to reconcile us to God and to one another. I just want to again pause as Sarah directed us earlier in this service to, to just continue in repentance and confession. I know there, there's some, there are many in Christian community that still just get offended at the whole idea that as a, as a group of people, we're somehow complicit in something that we did not personally engage in and in fact are very much against. But at the very least, Lord Jesus, we can all go to this place of grieving and lamenting that your name has been associated again with the very things that Jesus came to live and die to rescue us from. Lord, it is a grief to us. In the context of this message this morning, it is a grief to us that things like sexism and racism ethnocentrism, Christian nationalism, that these various kinds of prejudices and discrimination continue to persist in a community of people who ostensibly believe that Christian community is your idea and it's diverse and it's messy and it's intentional. And there's a disconnect. And we repent over that disconnect. We grieve, we lament over that disconnect. So Lord, as one local manifestation of your body, Jesus, would you lead us to a deeper place of surrender, a deeper place of welcome and hospitality, a deeper place of empathy and joy in your spirit so that what you're growing here on the corner of Park Avenue and Broadway and all throughout the city is just increasingly diverse. The people that we would never expect to get together at a 10 o'clock hour on a Sunday morning would be deeply entrenched, immersed in community, joyfully worshiping and serving and enjoying you shoulder to shoulder and reaching back out to the city and saying, who's still not here? <laughs> who has not been invited to this feast? Because a lot of those who have been invited over and over and over again, they're not coming. And we have an opportunity to go and say, what about you? Have you heard this good news? Have you heard what Jesus has done for you? So Lord, we approach these elements this morning, particularly with these thoughts and particularly with a, a hope that we would live in reconciliation with you, that we would live in reconciliation with one another for Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.